The rest of us, let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13. Last week I went all the way through verse 43, but I didn't really touch on those last couple of verses, 42, 43, uh, in sufficient fullness. So I'd like to let that be our overlap with last week so we can, uh, so we can get ourselves into then what happens afterwards, all right? So let me lead us in a prayer, and then I'll read the text, and away we go. Let's pray, everybody. Most holy Lord God in heaven, your word is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Every word of the Bible is yours. All scripture is God-breathed. You teach us, you train us, correct us, rebuke us, you equip us. Through your word, you equip us for every good work, for everything you call us to be, everything you call us to do. And so, during this time that we listen to your word and read your word and study your word, we are continuing in worship because we want to hear from you. I claim, Lord, in front of you and and in front of all these people, no special power or no special wisdom. I just, Lord, want to be guided by you to share what is true from your word, and I pray for your help and your guidance in that. And I pray for all of us that we would listen and be encouraged, that we would see in your word doctrine, edification, guidance, call to action, all through your word, by your spirit living in us, may we be taught and guided. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we left off last week. Paul preached a sermon, right? Paul went into the synagogue at Antioch in Pisidia. And there were gathered there Jews and Gentiles, right? There were, and there were Jewish people, of course, in the synagogue. You'd expect that. But there were also Gentiles in two different classes. Not classes isn't the right word, but categories. If you, I like to categorize people, but... There were proselytes who were Gentiles who had gone all the way to converting over to Judaism via circumcision, etc. And there were Gentiles who were thought of as those who fear God. They were just God-fearing Gentiles. They believed in the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. Paul preached, and his sermon was just so powerful and wonderful and outstanding He gave them a history of Israel. He gave them a history of how God had worked. He started with Abraham and he came up all the way through David. And and then he made the connection to Jesus. And of course, the highlight of it came in uh, verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, a reference to Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Amen? Amen. The forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Praise the Lord. Can't be justified unless your sins are forgiven. If your sins are still in the way, you are not just before God, no matter how good of a person you think you are, no matter how religious you consider yourself to be. None of it matters. What matters is that through faith in this man, this Jesus who died for us and rose from the dead, your sins have been blotted out. And as a result of that, God justifies you. Because Jesus is just. And the righteousness of Jesus is actually imputed to you when you believe. So that's the highlight of the message. And then he closed the message with a warning about not believing. And then verse 42. Ready? So... When the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Right? So, set that up deliberately like that. So, last week, we had the sermon, and and now here we are a week later, 
just like uh, they were a week later, gathered back together. Now, when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes, remember what they are, Gentiles who had converted all the way over to the Jewish religion, they followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, so here we are now, a week later, right? So verses 42 and 43 really attach to last week. And now on verse 44, it's a week later, just like we are. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Insert wow. But, or hallelujah, even better. Yes, thank you for that. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region but the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit." And I might add, a church was founded through all of that. A church was founded, you know that, when you get towards the middle and latter part of, of chapter 14, and you see them going back through all of the cities that they had first come through. They go back and the, uh, a church had been born. Praise the Lord. A church, was, a church was born, really the best and only way a church ought to be born, by the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by people believing that gospel. And then Jesus himself, being the head of the church, raises it up. Now, let me say a few things as we just kind of teach through this and unpack it uh, about verses 42 and 43. So you see, there's, there's really one particular phrase in there, which is at the very end of those two verses, that I want to uh, put some emphasis on. It tells us that, the first week now, we're going back to last week, the Jews went out of the synagogue, but the Gentiles begged them that they would come back the following week, you know, and, and preach again. And we talked about it last week. You can see what it was that, that uh, they went out to do, right? They went out and they gathered all their friends. This is, this is Gentile turf, if you will, right? There is a synagogue. There's some Jewish people in the city. There are some Gentiles who believe in the God of Israel. Praise God for all that. But this is a very Gentile area in central Turkey, as we would call it today. What do you suppose is it that prompted these believers, these new Gentile believers, to go out and gather everybody? I think it's important to think about it because it can just read like so kind of stiff and wooden and just matter of fact. You know, they believed, they were happy, next week everybody came back. But how do you get to that? I mean, how do you get to that? I think that they were, I think that they were filled with a sense of amazement at God, at Jesus, at the teaching of the gospel and what it was, right? I mean, what is the gospel? The gospel is like the, the religion that has been practiced in Jerusalem at the temple and, and all of the preaching of the prophets and teaching and everything, looking ahead to the fulfillment of promises that happened in the synagogues throughout the dispersion all over the world, all of that finds its fulfillment in this one man. The prophecies came true. It all happened. Jesus died. 
He received the wrath of God against all of our sins as God had promised. He was buried as God said he would be. He saw no corruption. He rose up from the dead as all of our prophets and all of the word of God said. And now through faith in him, the fulfillment of all that is sin is wiped away and sinners are just justified and reconciled to God. That's a plan that God's still rolling out today. It's still at work now. You might be sitting in this room or sitting listening to this right now and you need Jesus. God is still rolling it all out, man, and bringing people to Christ. And that's it. That's the whole power of God for to save people. It's not a bunch of stuff. It's not a bunch of religion. It's not a bunch of ceremonies. It's not a bunch of sacrifices. It's not a bunch of works. It's not a bunch of like, you know, deep, deep, like, you know, trying to understand this concept and that theology and this philosophy and this rudiment and everything else. It's as simple as this. Jesus died for your sins and he was buried and he rose from the dead. And they meant they are blown away by that. They receive Christ. They're filled themselves with the Holy Spirit. The end of the chapter tells us that. And we know that doctrinally when someone believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, they receive his spirit. They're not the same anymore. That's why we're called to walk in newness of life. You know, I mean, on one hand, Jesus said you need to be born again. But the book of Romans actually says you died. Right. We speak of being born again when you get saved. You also died when you got saved. Did you know that? The old you died and you were buried, as it were, with Christ in baptism and you were raised, Romans 6 says, to newness of life. So you got a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of Gentiles who went to synagogue that day and they walked out. The old them walked in, died, was raised, and they walked out to live in newness of life. That's what went around the city inviting people to come. Right? It wasn't just some stale wooden thing like, you know, please come to our whatever. These people were on fire, man. I mean, they were blown away. They were filled with gratitude. They were filled with love. No doubt they had a great focus on what it was they were supposed to do. They were committed to the simplicity of it, right? It, it, you don't need to take a class or become certified in something. You don't need a degree. You don't need to go to seminary to go tell someone who's lost. You need to be saved. Come on and hear the word. Come and listen and hear the words of eternal life. You know what you need? You need to be amazed at God. You need to be filled with His Spirit. You need to be a believer in Jesus yourself. You need to love God and love sinners enough. You need to have a, a good, holy fear of what hell really is. And then you just go out and you just talk to people. Come on, hear the words of eternal life. And that way, in that way, God Himself pleads with the world through His servants. Did you know that? It's not just like a business. We're trying to build a church or we're trying to build a ministry. God is pleading with this world. Repent. See what I have done to save you. Come to my son, Jesus, who died for you and rose from the dead and receive eternal life, the forgiveness of sins. That's why the whole city gathered. Because a bunch of people walked into synagogue, died, and were raised. You couldn't see it. You couldn't hear it. But it happened in them. The old them died. A new them was raised to newness of life. And they walked out of there and went and gathered the whole city. And I know you think, well, it must have been a small town, right? I've looked and looked and looked, and it's hard to determine, you know, what the population was. But it's described in the text here as multitudes, right? That's the same word that was used to describe the crowds that followed Jesus. Like when Jesus fed 5,000 men and there were women and children in addition to that. So we're not talking like some, you know, it's a little town of 100 people where everyone knows everybody else. And like, you know, 30 of them were at the synagogue that day and then they came back and 90 of them were there the next week. Multitudes came back. Because these people were on fire. Now, that's what they were about. Now, I want to say something about verse 43. When the congregation broke up, many of the Jews and the devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, 
And don't be confused by that. It, this is Paul and Barnabas speaking to the, the Jews and the proselytes, not the proselytes and Jews speaking to Paul and Barnabas. Paul, Paul, Paul and Barnabas spoke to them, persuading them, listen, to continue in the grace of God. That's a very important phrase that we didn't really break down last week because we kind of ran out of time. But I want you to understand this. The word, according to Vine's expository dictionary of biblical words. Did you catch that? I want you to say, I want you to hear that because that's, that's one of the resources I look at when I want to understand the Greek meaning of something. I'm not myself a scholar in Greek, but I am grateful to the many great resources out there. You go to a website called biblehub.com. You can look at that as well. All right. But listen, according to these wonderful resources, the Greek word that's translated there uh, to continue is uh, prosmeno, which I probably pronounced wrong. I don't think so, though. Prosmeno. And the idea means to stay longer or to stay further, to remain in place. It means to adhere to something, stick to something, to persevere in something. That's the idea of prosmeno. And what he's told here is they are the, the Paul and Barnabas, after preaching that term, sermon, told them to glue themselves to the grace of God. Why? Well, Paul and Barnabas knew where they were. They were in a synagogue. And everything that could have been read and preached in a synagogue would have pointed people to Jesus. And yet, by and large, the Jewish people, especially the religious, religious leaders in Jerusalem, they did not receive him, right? And so, he knew that there would be a climate. He knew there would be something at work in there. This gets confirmed when you read the book of Galatians, right? He knew there would be a, a, a climate in there where perhaps the unbelieving religious leadership in the synagogue would be wanting to lure people back into the system of, if you want to be just before God, you need to not eat this, you need to not do this on this day, you need to observe this holy day. And, you know, everything else, everything else that the, uh, that the, uh, the words of the old covenant were about. Listen, listen very carefully to me, everybody. The new covenant was not a tack on to the old covenant. The new covenant is the fulfillment of the old covenant. The old covenant being the laws that God gave to Israel through Moses, right? They all were a shadow, which you know this coming to here any length of time, but just in case you don't. The old covenant, the system of the law, was, and the whole religion connected to it, was looking ahead to the new covenant. When the new covenant came, which was sealed in Christ's blood when he died on the cross, which is why you eat bread and drink the cup at the Lord's table. What you're drinking at the Lord's table is a symbol of his blood, which was shed to seal the new covenant. When the new covenant was sealed, the old covenant was nullified. Done. No use for it anymore. And so Paul, when he preaches in this synagogue, he urges them to prosmeno, stick to it, glue yourself to what? The grace of God. Now, the neighbors regionally of these people are the ones that Paul is going to eventually hear in a region called Galatia. Galatia is right next door to the region where Pisidia is, right? And, and this city being Antioch in Pisidia. When Paul goes to Galatia and preaches there, the same thing happens. Lots of Gentiles get saved, but as soon as he leaves, and you're seeing this, it, what, what you're reading now and we're studying now in Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14, this is the foundation for the council that happens in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 and ultimately leads to Paul writing the book of Galatians. And the book of Galatians famously starts like this. After his initial greetings, Galatians 1 says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ. You see? I mean, Paul writes this because he's amazed. I mean, even here in Antioch and Pisidia, a whole bunch of people get saved. And he says, now listen, continue in the grace of God. 
Don't get pulled back. This is the fulfillment of everything that the old covenant was about. Don't walk back to the old covenant. Don't try to justify people by circumcising their males and observing this Sabbath and observing this law and everything else. You are completely, fully, totally justified by God's grace when you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, that was everything 100% entirely sufficient and the only thing that could ever save a person. You add, you must add nothing to it. You need add nothing to it and you must add nothing to it. Jesus Christ's death on the cross and resurrection from the dead is all that is needed to carry us to heaven with the Lord. Just add your faith, which we're coming to. Right? We're saved by God's grace through faith. So he says, I marvel in Galatians, writing to the neighboring region after all of this was done. I marvel you're turning away so soon from him who called you to the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Right? I mean, believing on Jesus and adding to it, you know, you still need to be circumcised and you still need to keep the Sabbath and you still need to keep the law of Moses. Paul refers to that as a different gospel, which is not another. It's not, you know, you understand the words, right? Different and another. They mean two different things. A different gospel implies that there could be more than one, which is why he says, which is not another. There is no other gospel, right? You're trying to create a different gospel, but there's no room for a different gospel. There's one gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures was buried, and on the third day rose again according to the Scriptures. That's it. That's why he says, I have determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. That's it. Hallelujah. Thank God that that's it. Right? Hey, you know, and, and even, what do we do? We walk away from the moment we're saved and we're immediately confronted with struggles in our own flesh. We battle with the flesh. We battle with sin. We battle with like a little half-heartedness maybe. We're battling with things. And you come back to this. His grace is sufficient. Why do I keep battling and struggling with this? Well, yes, I'd like to have victory. And His power is at work in us to tear down strongholds. But, but, but I'm not trying to do anything any longer to justify myself or prove myself. I couldn't anyway. I'm justified because Jesus was completely just. And God the Father accepted the sacrifice of Jesus, His Son. That's it. That's your justification. And it will never be more than that. You will never grow to the point where it's like, now I understand why God saved me. You're never, listen, you're never going to grow to that point in this life. Yes, we grow and we rejoice, but we don't rejoice in the stuff that, the fruit that comes out of us that God works out of us as He works in us. And we live it out and work it out. It's always back to Jesus. Back to Jesus. Paul goes on in that passage in Galatians to say, if anyone comes and preaches to you anything else, let him be accursed. Do you hear what I said? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for your sins. He rose from the dead. If you trust in Him, by God's grace, you are saved. If anyone preaches anything else, meaning they pervert that, take away from it, or add anything to it, even adherence to the customs and the religious principles of the Bible, the Old Testament itself, let them be accursed. There is no other gospel than the grace of God. Which is why in the next chapter of Galatians, Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then what? Who's got it? Yes, very good. Christ died in vain. You follow? That's, 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 that's theological logic. Right? You just think it through and you get it. If you can still be justified by getting circumcised and converting to Judaism, essentially, then Jesus didn't need to die. He died in vain. He died uselessly. If you try to add to faith in Christ 
oh, I'm still going to keep the Sabbath and I'm not going to eat certain things. And you start adding all these things because you think that's what God wants. No, God wants you to believe the gospel and that is all. Because if you can still be justified through the works of the law, Jesus died in vain. Jesus didn't die in vain. Jesus died at the will of God, demonstrating and bringing forth the power of God. And now, and now, through faith in Him, there is the only way and the only path to everlasting life. By His grace. Which is why He says... In verse 43, why it's, it says that he persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. All right? Amen, everybody? So the next Sabbath, let's go into it. Now, what happens? The next Sabbath, they all come together. You know that. We went over that. Glory at that. Tried to explain why and how that happened. But when the Jews saw the multitudes... They were filled with envy, right? Which, which reveals something about where they were really at when Paul was with them the previous week, right? There, there, there really was not belief among the Jews, meaning the religious leaders. Clearly there were some Jewish people who believed. There's no doubt about that because they followed Paul and Barnabas, right? But the Jews, especially among the leaders of the synagogue, they didn't really believe. Because if they did, when they saw these multitudes gathered, they would have been like, Hallelujah! But they weren't. They were filled with jealousy, and they decided to stick their noses in and interfere with the preaching of the gospel. Right? They were filled with envy. The worst kind of envy. Spiritual envy that drove them to reject the truth of the grace and the gift of God to interfere with the preaching of his gospel. See, they were contradicting, right? Contradicting means they were listening to the things that Paul and Barnabas would say, and they were deliberately, directly, antithetically undercutting the things that he said. And they were blaspheming. They were actually, whether consciously or not consciously, by contradicting, they were actually blaspheming God because the gospel is God's plan. Listen, this, this is the futility and the sadness of it all. The whole point of their existence was to be the ones to whom God had committed the oracles of God, right? The Jewish people, they were the ones who had received all the sayings of God, the covenant of God, the word of God, the blessings of God, the promises of God. And they were to be a light to everybody else in the world for this moment. The moment had arrived that they had all worked for and, and prayed for and labored for and held on. Listen, they're dispersed throughout the world and they're holding on, holding on, holding on to the tenets of the faith. And now the moment arrives. Here comes the apostles of God, Jewish men themselves. The apostles of God come into their synagogue and proclaim the salvation of Yahweh in Jesus, the Son of God. And they're contradicting and they're blaspheming. Oh, sad. <sighs> wow. You think it stopped God? Do you think it stopped God? No, it didn't. Working in Paul and Barnabas, they grew bold. And they said this. Ready? It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it, remember what he had said at the end of his sermon last week? See verse 41, peek back at verse 41. After he offered them salvation, he said, behold, he said, verse 40 actually, beware therefore lest what, the pro what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. And he quotes from Habakkuk. Behold, you despisers, marvel and die. Right? If you're going to reject, if you're going to reject this, you are going to be amazed at it, but it's going to end in your death. So don't reject it. And here they are, one week later, one week later, falling into that category. And Paul and Barnabas called them out. They grew bold. Hey, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it, then exactly what Habakkuk had said. 
and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Marvel and die. Right? The whole city's here. Didn't even impress them except to make them jealous and now they end up dead for rejecting the gospel. The gospel is not a thing to be tampered with. The gospel is not a thing to be ignored. The gospel is not a thing to be rejected. The gospel is not a thing to fool around with. The gospel is not a thing to undermine. The work of preaching the gospel is to be cherished, prayed over, with first fruits of your strength devoted to, supported, participated in by every believer. It is not to be corrupted or undermined or interfered with or minimized in prominence or importance in any way. The preaching of the gospel is the primo work of God in the world for the last 2,000 years and will be until the day of the Lord. Hallelujah. Look what it says. You judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. See? They thought they were judging the gospel as being an interference with the tenets of their religion. What they had actually unwittingly done was judge themselves unworthy of everlasting life. In other words, that's a way to describe what? Pride. Pride is basically what it is. Right? Because we know from Proverbs chapter 3, and then quoted three times in the New Testament, God resists the proud, but gives His what? Grace to the humble. And they were not humble. They were proud. And so, Paul says, Paul does not say, you're not worthy of everlasting life. Paul says, you've judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life because of their blaspheming and their contradicting of the gospel. And so what does he say? Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. And then he quotes from Isaiah, for so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the... Isn't that great? You know, you know how like when we preach and we want to say something and we quote scripture... Isn't it comforting to know that Paul did the same thing? Like Paul would say something and he would say, basically, because the Bible says, right? That's what he's doing here, right? He said, we're turning to the Gentiles because Scripture says so. Verse 47, for the Lord has commanded us, and he quotes from Isaiah, I've set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard that, they were really happy, right? We'll go over some of that in a minute, but first... I want to say one more word, and by one more word, I mean like a whole bunch of words about, <laughs> uh, I, 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 a whole bunch of words about this issue of the, um, the Jews and the gospel. There is no doubt that when Paul preached, he held nothing back in refuting, contending with, and rebuking the Jews who did not believe the gospel, rejected the gospel, undermined the work of the gospel, even got Paul himself on multiple occasions beaten up, thrown out, persecuted. However, nothing that Paul ever said or ever did was done out of anything other than love for his people. Remember that according to the flesh, Paul was one of them, of the tribe of Benjamin. A former zealous practitioner of the religion of the Old Covenant and a defender of it to the point of persecuting, imprisoning, and even having a hand in the deaths of Christians. Jewish Christians. Paul was a bold man, but he was a humble man. A few, a few words from Romans, which Paul wrote concerning the Jews and their place in this whole scheme of God saving Gentiles. You need to be aware of this and maybe it could drive you to pray. In his opening in Romans 1, 
He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among other Gentiles. Paul knew he was called the Gentiles. He said so to these people in Antioch here now, right? Paul knew that he was called the other Gentiles. So he wanted to go to Rome. And he said, I am a debtor both to Greeks and barbarians. He's talking about, he's, 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 he's classifying Gentiles there. Greeks being the more erudite, maybe upper class educated ones. Barbarians being on the other end and everything in between. We don't like to think in terms of that, but that's how Paul wrote back in the day. He didn't hold anything back. Greeks and barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So, as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you, who are in Rome also, for I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And then he says this, It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. Right? And when you read that in context, you realize that Paul, after going through as much as he did, and finding so much opposition from the Jews. By the time he writes Romans, he's still committed to the fact that the gospel is first for the Jew. Because they received the covenant. They received, if you will, the Messiah was one of them. That was planned from the beginning. He's the son of David. Right? And Paul never swerved from that idea that the gospel is for the Jew. In our world, we don't think of it right. We think of like Jewish people just being arbitrarily, completely antithetical to the gospel. And while statistically most Jews have not received Jesus, you should not look at a Jewish person as someone who's like in, not in need of the gospel. They're not only in need of the gospel, it's for them first. We're, we're, we're the beneficiaries, the recipients of what God gave to them first. And Paul, who had all this fruit among the Gentiles, never swerved from that. Even by the time he writes Romans, he's still down with that. Later in Romans, in chapter 10, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Yeah? That should be our heart's desire too, shouldn't it? Paul was Jewish. I'm not. I don't know everybody in the room. I don't know everybody watching online. But I'm guessing most of you listening to me are not. But shouldn't our heart's desire be the same thing, that Israel would be saved? We want the gospel to go to them. Paul says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, just like Paul did before he was a Christian. But not according to knowledge. They have zeal, but the zeal's off because they've rejected the Messiah. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, and listen to this, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. What a statement. So eloquent. So clear. They've not sub what is the righteousness of God? That all of His just wrath was poured out on the Messiah. Poured out on His Son. And then He, was, he is the Messiah. And He died. And they're just not down with that whole idea of Messiah being someone who's going to come, who's going to die. Listen, Jesus, He died. And that was God's righteousness. And Jesus rose from the dead. And now the righteousness of Jesus is credited to those who believe in him. Jew first, Gentile also. And the Jew still has zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. Because they're still trying to justify themselves by the old covenant. Listen closely. The old covenant is null and void. The new covenant completely obsoleted and invalidated it. The old covenant has one purpose now, that its laws teach us that we are sinful and in need of the mercy and grace of God that is found in Christ, which Galatians says that the law is our schoolmaster, our teacher. You follow that? I'm just talking about the law. I'm, I'm not saying don't read the Psalms. Don't, don't study the, the, the history of creation. Don't read the prophets. There's a lot of the prophets of the Old Testament are not fulfilled yet. There's volumes and volumes of verses concerning the Messiah's coming at the end, his second coming, that aren't fulfilled yet. Don't, just, don't, don't take what I'm saying that the Old Testament is invalid. Man, you can't be more wrong. I, mean, I, read, the old, I read the Old Testament every single day. Listen, it's the Old Covenant, the system by which the sacrifices were made, that, and, and the laws, the Sabbaths, 
the dietary laws, all these things. Wiped aside when Jesus died because Jesus took the penalty for it all. All those sacrifices, sprinkle the blood here, wave the piece of meat there, cook this on the altar over there, dump this outside the camp over there, all fulfilled in Jesus. In Romans 11, Paul says, I say then, they've stumb- have they stumbled that they should fall? In other words, the children of Israel, I love, the words are amazing. Have they stumbled that they should fall? Stumbling being a picture of a temporary stumble, fall being a picture of a permanent fall, right? And his answer is, certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. You're a Gentile, and you're in faith, and you're in, you're in Christ, by grace through faith. Don't get heady and arrogant towards the Jew who rejects it. We are the beneficiaries of it. Paul says here that they stumbled because they rejected Jesus when he came. But God has used that to save multitudes of Gentiles. I'm not proud to be a Christian. I'm blessed to be a Christian. I've received a gift that I don't deserve. Right? Later he says, if they don't continue in unbelief, God will graft them in again. Speaking of like grafting a branch into a vine. We are as Gentiles, unnatural branches grafted into a vine that we shouldn't really be part of. And we get all of our nourishment through that vine. That's the relationship of God between His people Israel. We've been grafted into that through faith in Jesus and the gospel. But what Paul goes on to say about Israel, if they don't continue in unbelief, they'll be grafted in because God's able to graft them in again. And in the same chapter, Romans 11, he says, And so all Israel will be saved. Don't misunderstand that statement. He doesn't mean universal salvation for Jewish people living now. What he means is, will be saved. Meaning, in the end, when Messiah returns, the remnant that is still alive, all of them will turn in faith to Jesus. As scripture says, every eye will see him, even what? Even those who pierced him. A reference to the Jewish people. When Jesus returns, every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and the Jewish people, that remnant after the great tribulation, when so much of the earth is flipped upside down, destroyed and wiped out, and billions of people are dead in the judgments that God pours out on the earth. In the end of that, the remnant of Israelites that see the Messiah's return will humble themselves and believe the gospel and all Israel will be saved. And he quotes scripture. He quotes from Isaiah 59 to make sure you understand it. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, which is Israel. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's Isaiah being quoted by Paul in the Word of God, the Bible. That's pretty good authority. She pray for the Jews, the ones that living now, that they would turn to this glorious Messiah, this glorious Jesus who is theirs, who is one of them. Now, verse 48. Now, when we get to verse 48, we kind of leave the Jews who are opposing and we come back to the Gentiles who received it. And here's what we're told. Listen to this. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, heard what? Heard what Paul had said, since you reject this, you prove yourself unworthy of salvation, so we're turning to the Gentiles. If you're a Gentile and you're in the synagogue and you hear that, you're like, you're like beaming, right? Yeah, this is for us. 
We're included. Even if the leaders, because look, you're a Jew, and if you're a Gentile, and you're in the synagogue, you have this sense that you're kind of an outsider, right? I'm sure it was warm. I'm sure it was like they were friendly. I'm sure everyone got along well. But you have this sense that you're, you're always, you permanently have this sense that you're like a visitor. You know what I mean? You're there. And it's like, if, if, and, and you're listening to this, you're thrilled, you're amazed, you're overjoyed, you're filled with gladness because of the gospel. But what's the rabbi going to say? What, what am I going to do if the rabbi rejects this? What am I going to do if the elders of the synagogue reject this? Well, Paul and Barnabas settled it. You know what you're going to do? You're going to follow this anyway. You get it? Because they're like, Paul and Barnabas say, because they, they, listen, they undermined, they fought against it, they contradicted it. And Paul said, you know what? From now on, we're not even coming to you. We're just going to the Gentiles. And so the Gentile who had believed and been saved and had God's Holy Spirit in him and was full of joy was like, yeah. It says it. You see the word G-L-A-D? You know what that means, right? You know what gladness is? It's joy. It's happiness. It's, yeah. Are you glad today? Are you in Christ? Are you glad to be in Christ today? Are you glad to be in Christ today? If God permits, will you continue to be glad in Christ tomorrow? Man, check your brain, check your heart, check whatever you need to check if you're not glad in Christ. These people got it. And they glorified the word of the Lord. What does it mean to glorify something? It means to hold it up for everyone else to see and to make much of it. That's what glory is. Glory is like the revealed essence of something, right? They saw the glory of God fill the temple. It was that bright light that was so strong that the priests couldn't even minister. That was the glory of God, right? To glorify something means to hold it up like that. To hold it out for the world to see. That's what they did with the word of the Lord. They were glad and they glorified the word of the Lord. And look at this. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Wow. This adds a whole level of divinity. This adds a whole level of God action to this. That, that we really haven't yet considered in all of this. Appointed is the word tasso. Same sources, by the way. Vine's Dictionary. Uh, I read a couple of other sources that I forgot to write down the names of them, but I read them all the time. I just never think about what they're called. But the idea of tasso as it's used here is to place in order. This idea of appointed. To place in order, to arrange, to appoint. Just read this article from Vine's Dictionary. It says, Christ had appointed a meeting with his disciples after his resurrection in Matthew 28, 16. It means he picked the place and the time and said, be there. Uh, in Luke 7, and I wrote this verse down. You know the story in Luke chapter 7 where Jesus meets this Roman centurion who has a servant who's sick and he begs Jesus to come and heal him and Jesus is all ready to go. But uh, the centurion says, no, no, I'm not even worthy that you should come under my roof. And, and his explanation is, I am a man placed under authority having soldiers under me. That idea of being placed under authority, the concept of the word tasso in Greek is in there, right? It's taking someone and setting it where it belongs. Boom. That's the idea of appointed. Uh, God, when I, when I first believed the gospel of Christ, when someone preached the gospel to me, what was apparent to me in that moment was someone preached a message, I heard it, I believed it, and I decided to respond to it by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And listen, I'm not into the whole arguing back and forth about Calvinism and free will all the time. I, my position is a very reformed one, but I don't think the arguing ever does any good. It just it makes fools of us in front of the world, and it makes, uh, it makes uh, Christians not love one another and even divide from one another and even judge one another to be not saved sometimes. I've seen it go that far. But I have to tell you, at the moment that I received Jesus, my perception was the gospel had been preached. My heart was burning within me. I knew I needed this. And so I turned to Christ and I believed and I received him. And what seemed like an act of my will to me at the time, look, and that's why I don't have a problem with somebody saying, you know, I made a decision for Christ or whatever. Look, it took me some time to read scripture and grow in the faith to come to understand this, this. Long before I made a decision, a decision was made for me. I was appointed. I was tasso. I was placed in order. I was appointed. I was ordained, as the King James Version says. Ordained to receive eternal life. And there's only one way for that appointment to be kept. And that is through faith. And so God, through the preaching of His gospel, brought me to faith. He opened my eyes. No one comes to the Father unless He draws Him. That has to do with the act of preaching, speaking, and hearing the gospel. And it has to do with the act of God sovereignly, by His divine power, working in the heart and mind of the person who's receiving it. It's God at work. It is God who saves. It is God who delivers. It is God who brings about salvation. This is where the term sovereign grace comes from. It is God as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Notice it does not say, this is the easiest way to understand it, it does not say, and as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. The appointment preceded the believing. The appointment happened before you existed. The appointment happened in the mind and by the power and by the directive of God himself. And then it played out in time exactly when it would. When I received the gospel, it seemed to me like maybe I could receive this or I could put it off and think about it or reject it. I come to realize later as I study scripture and learn about him, my coming to faith was inevitable because I was appointed for it by God. That makes me want to say thank you, Lord. That makes me want to say praise the Lord. Because I know that God didn't appoint me because he saw anything worthy. I know God did not appoint me because he looked and he said, Yeah, that one, he looks great. He appointed me because in love and mercy, long before I existed, he knew of me. He knew my weaknesses. He knew my sins. He knew how even after I believed, I would still battle and struggle with things. And that did not make him say, you know what? Not him. I don't know what the rationale is in God's mind. I'm certain he has one because he's not a random God. But I know his rationale has nothing to do with anything worthy in me. It's his love and his grace. It's pity. It's compassion. It's Psalm 78, which says, as it, uh, Psalm 78, which accounts for all of the ways that Israel kept turning against God, turning against God, turning against God. And then in Psalm 78, it says, but he remembered that they were but flesh. And he forgave them. And that's what it is. He looks at, he, look, he looks and he sees your weakness. And you don't look at yourself and say, yeah, but I this. And, and, you know, it's funny. People that reject the gospel can be proud. People that receive the gospel can be really proud too. 
They believe on Jesus and they keep looking at themselves and say, yeah, but I do this. Yeah, but I struggle with that. Of course you do. That's why Jesus died. That's why we say thank you, God. That's why we glory in the fact that he appointed us. He didn't say, clean yourself up, buddy. You're coming with me. He appointed you before you even existed. And then Jesus died for you. And then he rose from the dead. And then the appointed time, because that's what appointments need. They need a time, right? The appointed time came. And you weren't late for that appointment. You believed and you were saved. And look, it should encourage you. It doesn't license you to go out and sin. You know that. But like when you battle and you struggle and you still come back to things you battle and you struggle with, it's still God's grace that's keeping you in it. Earlier he said, continue in the grace of God. I realize now that my continuing in the grace of God is because he's got his hands around me, man. And he's holding me there. Hallelujah. And he will, that's why he's called the deliverer. He doesn't save you and then you deliver yourself in the end. He saves you. You slug it out walking through this life and at the end, he delivers you to the Father, to the kingdom for eternal salvation. He's delivered us out of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of sin, the kingdom of this world. He's delivered us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. He's a deliverer. He does it on his own terms, by his own power, in his own way to glorify his own goodness. It's all him. There is one God and one, uh, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. That's it. Jesus died for your sins, rose from the dead, and then God is reaching out through all the world to bring to himself those who have been appointed to receive eternal life. You're reading about it right now. As many had been appointed to receive eternal life, believed. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that an amazing statement? Well, what else do I have here? In my pile of papers to read to you. Just real quick. going to stop there. I want to save this. I'll save this either for Thursday night or for next Sunday, but I want to leave on that point. One mediator between God and men. This is the divine action of God that God has ordained himself, all him, that there is one path to him and that one path to him is through Jesus. These Gentiles got that. And they were overjoyed, filled with gladness and happiness over it. What about you? Do you recognize that God is in charge of this thing? He's in power over all of this. Come to Him. If you're listening here today, I don't know if, you know, preachers don't have any magic power. Paul just preached a simple message can read it in the beginning part of the chapter. Simple, straightforward message. Shared some scripture. Called them to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. Come to him. Come to him. Come to him by faith. Acknowledge, listen, the law condemns us all as sinners. We've all lied and stolen and dishonored our parents and committed adultery either in action or in in, in our hearts, we're all murderers, even with our actions or in our spirit by hating other people. We're murderers. We've all coveted other people's things. We've all worshipped idols or worshipped ourselves or worshipped celebrities or whatever. We've all, we're, all, we're guilty, 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 guilty on every count of sin with no hope of cleaning ourselves up or justifying ourselves. Come to Jesus. Receive Him. Believe Him. Believe that he died for your sins and rose from the dead. Cry out to him. Pray to him. Ask him to save you. Receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior today. And if you're here today and you're already in Christ 
And you know it. You've got that burning, that, that just growing, burning, abiding, just remaining in the grace of God, trusting in the grace of God. That faith is in you. Number one, don't depart from the grace of God. Continue to trust in His grace. Don't, don't let doubts assail you. Don't let struggles beat you down, right? But, but also, do what these people did. Get into it. Go and start spreading the word. There's people all... These people were on fire and they went and they grabbed everyone they could and said, you've got to hear this. You've got to know that We sit so calmly and so quietly and so peacefully. Do we understand the urgency of what's going on right now? This isn't some storybook from ancient times a long, long time ago in a land far, far away. That's not what this is. This is now. Go and reach people. Invite them to listen. Invite them to come. Invite them to hear like these guys did. That the grace of God might reach them too. Thank you, Lord, for your gospel. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our time together here today. In Jesus' name, amen. That's it. Let's sing one more hymn. Can I have my singers come up here? Sing one more song. Fanny's going to come and play for us. Stand up, everybody. Stand up. How y'all doing? Good? We got to get some urgency in us, right? Here's a hymn that should do that. 307, I think. 307, send the light. That's what we're called to do. Is send the gospel light from shore to shore. Let's sing.